So tonight, I am so excited. We're going to be continuing our Characters of the Bible series. This has probably been one of my absolute favorite series that we have ever done here at North Point Community Church. And we're going to throw up a timeline that we've been going through of the Old Testament, just kind of as a reminder of where we have been. So we started with creation. And we talked a little bit about Adam and Eve, and we talked about um, some other things there. And then we moved to um, Noah and Abraham and Moses with the Exodus. And then you see the children of Israel go into, um, at Conquest Complete, under Joshua, go into the Promised Land, right? And they go into the Promised Land, and they're being, uh, they're being governed by um, a series of judges who were exactly what you can imagine them to be. They, they were um, judges who settled disputes because that was the primary need of that time. They also were judges who would lead people into war. And so we went through this entire period of the judges and saw some very interesting characters during that time. And now we are in the period of the kings. And that began with Saul and then David and then Solomon. And then the kingdom of Israel broke up. It broke into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And for about 450 years, um, we see Israel, whether it's united or divided, governed by kings. And after that point in time, they go into captivity um, in Babylon. They go into exile, and the kingdoms are completely destroyed. The temple is torn down. Um, it, it's really a devastating period of time for Israel and Judah. And the Bible makes it very clear that this destruction and this exile are judgment sent from God against the people of Israel for their abandonment and disobedience of God's laws. Now, that's, that's not a, a negotiable. That's in the book. And that's what happens. But right now, we are in the period of time. You can see kind of the period of kings, right? And we are in the period of time where Isaiah and Jonah, we talked about Isaiah last week. We're going to talk about Jonah right now. Now, Jonah was a prophet. And Jonah actually predates Isaiah. And Jonah is a prophet to the kingdom of Israel, whereas Isaiah was a prophet to the kingdom of Judah. And this is a little bit important. The kingdom of Judah had bad kings and good kings. And the way I'm defining bad and good there is they had kings that followed God and they had kings that did not follow God. Judah kind of had both. Israel basically had kings that did not follow God. So Judah had kind of these kings that would go back and forth generationally. They would follow God for a little while, and then they would fall away. And then they would follow God for a little while, and then they would fall away. But Israel consistently did not follow God. And so Isaiah was bringing a message to Judah, which would last about mm, 50 or 60 years beyond the kingdom of, or it may even be 100 years, beyond the kingdom of Israel. So he was bringing a message of judgment at about the same time period in the country as Jonah is existing. 
And most of us know the story of Jonah from when we were little kids, right? Jonah and the whale. It's, it's a great story. I mean, it's fantastic. People do their nurseries in Jonah and the whale. It, it's also, it's, it's very funny because it's a terrifying story. It also humors me when people do their nurseries in Noah and the ark. It's a terrifying story. It is not a children's story. If there was any kind of story that is not for little kids, it is Noah and the ark. But anyway. So, Isaiah and Jonah are kind of part of the same time period where God is speaking to the Israelites, but he does it very differently through the lives of these two prophets. Isaiah communicates clearly to his people the issue that God has with them. In fact, we read it last week, but I'm going to read it again in Isaiah chapter 1. He begins to lay out the case that Almighty God has against Judah. He says, stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. Wow. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And then in verse 16, he says, wash yourselves and be clean. I want to back up. Verse 15 says, when you lift your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. You know, a lot of us know, if you've grown up in church, you know that scripture. That, that Jesus washed our sins white as snow. But the context of that verse in the historical context, we understand that that was the prophetic context, but the historical context is that the kingdom of Judah was not treating people fairly. They, they were oppressing each other. They were treating each other unjustly. They weren't defending the rights of the orphan the most vulnerable in their society, the widow, the one who could not care for themselves. And God calls them out in the first chapter of this incredible book of prophecy and says, stop giving sacrifices and stop praying and go do what I told you to do in the first place. And that's the context that we need to look at Jonah's life in as well. Because the God of Judah was the God of Israel and is the God of Israel. The God of Judah is the God of not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. The God that spoke through Isaiah still speaks through Isaiah to us today. And today he's going to also speak to us through Jonah. So Jonah's a prophet and is set in the time of, of the kingdom of Israel. It's about 8th century B.C. He's before Isaiah but still sort of in the same time period. And, and we see Jonah in the historical record in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 
through 27. In the NIV, it says this, Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash, began to rule over Israel in the 15 year of King Amaziah's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 41 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Talking about this king. He refused to turn from the sins that Jeroboam had led Israel to commit. Now, Jeroboam II, talking about this evil king, recovered the territories of Israel between something in the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. Now you go, wait a second. We have an evil king, and yet God is promising that he's going to allow them to recover territories. I don't know about you, but that was a question in my mind. So I kept reading. And this is what it says. For the Lord saw the bitter suffering of everyone in Israel and that there was no one in Israel slave or free to help them. And because the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel completely, he used Jeroboam to save them. God took pity on Israel even though they hadn't even repented. God took pity on Israel and delivered them from their enemies and sent a prophet to prophesy it so they know, hey, I'm delivering you. I'm giving you back what was stolen from you, even though you still are not obeying me. And what's sad is that Israel at the end was saying, it's not possible that God would destroy us because we're God's chosen people. And who knows, but they may not have looked at this in the right way. Instead of seeing God's mercy, they could have seen it as evidence that God was just going to let them get away with all of it. We should never see God's mercy on our lives as evidence of his approval of what we're doing. So Jonah's this messenger to the people of Israel of hope in the midst of their sin. Despite their sin, God's going to give them back their territories. He's going to use an evil king to do it. But this is what we don't know. We don't know whether Jonah was sent to the kingdom of Israel before or after the story that bears his name. We don't know. I, I really don't know. And, and I wonder if, if you can kind of try to think about where it would fit in the context of the story. So, we start with Jonah, verse 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we're just going to go through the story. I hope that this will help you in two ways. One, I hope that you learned something about Jonah that you didn't know before, but two, if you're new to the study of the Bible, I hope this will help you see the way that you might go through a book and kind of start to study it, because sometimes you can go, how do we do that? Where do I stop? Well, this is just one way to do it. Okay, so, Jonah Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Lord gave this most message to Jonah, son of, son of Amittai, same guy. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. 
He bought a ticket and he went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. So God comes to Jonah, and Jonah knows the voice of God because he's a prophet, and, and ostensibly he's given other messages to Jonah before. Maybe it was the message that he got to give to the, the children of Israel that God was going to give them back their territories. Maybe it was other messages that aren't recorded in the Bible for us to see, but, but Jonah doesn't doubt whether this is the voice of God, and that's important to note. He's not wondering whether or not this is God. He knows it's God, but he doesn't want to listen. And so God says, get up, and I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh. I want you to announce my judgment because I've seen how wicked its people are. And he gets up. doesn't say he talked to God. It just says he gets up, and he goes, and he buys a ticket, and he goes the opposite way. He would have traveled to Nineveh by land, but he gets on a ship and goes the other way. Now, he's a prophet, and he, you know, theoretically believes in God since he's talking to God. It's a good thing, you know, if somebody's talking to you that you believe in them and believe that they exist, right? And so he believes in God, but um, so you can't imagine that he thinks that God can't see him on the ship. I mean, that's not reasonable, Right? I've always wondered, what, what did he think? You know, this God who's, who's so powerful and so amazing, what, he's, he's, he can't see me? Like, I get out on the water and, you know, he, he has, like, motion sickness? I don't know. Like, what was he thinking? And so I started reading a little bit more. And, and this is what they said is that there was a belief potentially in that time that the gift of prophecy and that God's presence was restricted to the land of Israel. So it wasn't that Jonah was trying to get out from under the eyes of God. He just wanted to run from the presence of God. Sometimes in our lives, when God's dealing with us on something, I think we act the same way. Because it's not like God can't see us at home. It's not like God can't find us in our living room. It's not like he can't find us in the other places we run to, but we run away from the places that we know God's presence is and where God has spoken to us before. You know, I'm just in a season right now where I just can't go to church. I've just got to get some things straight before I go to church. I have never met anybody who really wanted to get things straight who stayed out of church. Why? Because this is the place where you have encountered God's presence. And this is the place where maybe God has spoken to your heart before. You may say, well, I've never heard God speak. But you know what I'm talking about. That little thing in your heart where you go, hmm. I think, that, I think that message was for me. Or when you open the word of God and, and you start to read, I can always tell if I'm about to have a hard time because I can look back at my Bible reading plan and I'm a lot of days behind, like a month behind, you know? And I'm saying that I'm somebody who studies the Bible. Hey, I can't just study the Bible to preach to you. I have to study the Bible to read for me. And you can't just study the Bible sometimes and, and, and then hide from it on times where you go, I just need to hide from the presence of God. God's presence can find you wherever you are. And that's what happens to Jonah. Jonah finds out that God's presence is going to find him. And, and you know, he buys a ticket. 
He buys a ticket to get on this boat. And there's always a price to pay when we run from God. But it's usually a lot more than the price of the ticket. You know, Jonah may have thought, this is the price I have to pay to get away from God. But before it's all over, he's going to pay a lot more than that. So Jonah, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, it's just getting good. All right, so the Lord hurled. Don't you love that imagery? Isn't that beautiful? The Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. You know, it is a great mercy It's a gr- to be called home even when it's through a storm. It's a great mercy to be called home even when it is through a storm. You know, I can remember as a little girl and, and even er- later on in my life wondering why other people could do exactly what they wanted, but it seemed like the second that I stepped out of line, I was going to get caught. True confession time. I was in college, and I was about to graduate. No, I was in law school. I was about to graduate law school, and I was in, um, I had gone to this huge international debate tournament in Switzerland. I know, poor me. But anyway, I'd gone to this huge international debate competition um, because I'm that much of a nerd, and it was so much fun, and I was going around this city, and I got on the trolley, and um, I only had two stops, and I didn't really have any change for the ticket thing, and I thought to myself, man, I've got two stops. It's, it's not going to be a big deal. I'll just sit down. I have a ticket from earlier in the day, and so if anybody stops me, I'll just be like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't understand. My bad. You know, it's no big I am not lying. I'd been on that. I had been on that trolley for 30 seconds. The entire time that I have ever lived Anywhere overseas, there has never been an impromptu check of any public transportation system that I have ever been on. I was on that trolley for 30 seconds without a ticket. Beep, beep, beep. We're closing right now for an impromptu check to make sure that everyone here was honest and bought a ticket. (laughs) Are you kidding me? So I thought, okay, fine. I'm going to pull out my ticket. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And they go, oh, we're so sorry. It was funny, I got off the tram, and I really did feel the Holy Spirit speak to my heart and say, don't you even try. Don't you even try. I can see you. I can. Why can other people do whatever they want to do? You know what? Because you're God's. Too bad. When your parents signed you up for this thing, too bad. God will haunt you the rest of your life. When you signed up for this thing, too bad. You said you wanted in, you're in. It's the mercy of God that pursues us, that pursues us when we run from him. And sometimes the way he pursues us is he hurls storms in our way. 
He hurls storms in our way. And so one of the things I love about this is that all of the soldiers, I mean, these sailors, they, they completely freak out, right? I mean, this is a, if the sailors are upset, you know, it's like if your flight attendant is crying during the turbulence, you should cry too. If the sailors are upset and crying to their gods, you need to get up and cry to your God too. And yet Jonah is in the hold Dare I say pretending to sleep? Is that okay if I say he's asleep? He's what, whatever. He's asleep. I'm just imagining him down there with like his pillow over his head. This is not happening. This is not happening. This is not happening. And it takes a pagan captain to walk down there and say, don't you see what's going on in your life? Don't you see the storm that's raging all around us? Don't you see? Why don't you call out to your God? And when we are unwilling to call out to our God in our times of storm, he will send people who don't even believe in him to remind you of the power that he holds. So we keep going. Jonah Chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. So he tells him, hey, you've got you've to pray. By the way, it never says that Jonah actually prayed at any point right here. It doesn't say that he called out to God. It's not in the record that he opened his mouth. And yet God still found a way to communicate to the crew about Jonah and force Jonah to find his voice. Jonah 1, chapter 7 through 16, it says, Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. What do you think Jonah thought while they were casting lots? Do you think he was like, please don't put my name, please, just no, please. And then it came up as him, you know, and, and so they start asking him questions. They say, why has this awful storm come down on us? Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? And what is your nationality? You know, if you won't depend on God, then you'll often find yourself in the position of defending yourself. And that's where Jonah finds himself. And he says, look, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And the sailors are terrified when they heard this because he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Another translation says, what form of punishment would your God accept to stop this storm? This is the best story. Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it'll become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. That's the most remorse we get from Jonah for the rest of the story. And instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land, but the sea was too violent for them. They couldn't make it, so they cried out to the Lord. We haven't seen Jonah cry out to the Lord yet, but these sailors who don't even know Jonah's God, they cry out to the Lord, and they say, Oh, Lord, don't make us die for this man's sin. 
And don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The the sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now, the God of Hebrews must have been known to these people. We have to remember that that Israel and Judah are kingdoms at this point. And the exploits of the God of Israel and Judah must have been well known. The God of the Hebrews. And they find out, wait, man, you said you were running from a God, but you did not say that God. The God that opened the Red Sea... The the God that used 300 to kill an entire army? You mean the God that, that, that knocked down all the walls of Jericho? Yes, we've heard the stories. That God. And why did you do it? Why did you do it? And they call out to God. But even though they were terrified, they as pagans wanted to show Jonah mercy. They as pagans wanted to show Jonah mercy. They didn't want to throw him overboard. This was the same mercy that he had denied to the people of Nineveh. And you know, it's sad when we allow our faith to convince us that we're better than those without faith, while their actions show them to be more merciful than we are. Sometimes we can say things like, well, you know, Christians are the only people who really know how to love. I'll tell you what love looks like. Love looks like showing up in a war zone and handing out food and water. That's what love looks like. Love looks like meeting the real needs of real people in a real situation. That's what love looks like. And we can't say, oh, well, because we have Christ's love in our hearts, that our love is superior if our actions don't show that to be true. And that's one of the things that the story of of Jonah so speaks to me, is Jonah ran from the opportunity to show mercy to Nineveh, and these people put their life on the line for a chance to show mercy to him. And look how how God does a miracle. This is really the first miracle in the book of Jonah. God uses Jonah's disobedience to turn an entire ship of pagan sailors into his own devoted followers. Can you imagine when they landed back at shore and they let everybody know the story? Hey, I know each one of us had our own God when we set out. I know each one of us may have had our own history, but as we are landing, we are all now united in a vow to follow the one true God. What a miracle. It's a nice foreshadowing of what's going to happen later on. Jonah hadn't wanted to give, see God give mercy, so he had fled. But God still showed up, and he showed grace even through Jonah's own disobedience. So we go to Jonah Chapter 1, verse 17. This is the money verse of the whole story. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. 
So Jonah gets thrown into the sea, and the Lord has arranged a great fish to swallow Jonah. So far, the Lord has hurled a storm at him and arranged a great fish to swallow him. Oh, the gifts of God. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah, in the belly of the whale. Jonah, cut off from humanity. Jonah, isolated. Jonah, in the words of Jesus, as though he were dead. Jonah, who ran from God, now alone with God. And so, we see in chapter 2 that Jonah prays a a prayer of repentance and compliance. His prayer basically recounts everything that happened to him. Okay, look, you told me to go. I didn't go, and then you sent a storm, and then I almost died, and then I got swallowed by a whale, and it was really awful, and so all of this stuff happened, but you're really God, and he lends at the end, and he says, my salvation comes from you alone. He says, I get it. I disobeyed. My salvation comes from you alone. I'll obey. But there's no indication that he changes his mind about the mission. And as we get later in the story, it's very clear that he didn't change his mind about the mission. He just says, I'll comply. You've compelled me, so I will comply. He's doing the um, spiritual version of the three-year-old shrug, right? Juju has got this down, you know? I mean, she knows I can compel her. You know, she understands that there is compelling happening in the D's household. If you want to disobey, you will be compelled to move into a different direction. But she's just compliant. Go and do what I told you to do. Sometimes do we do the same thing? I get it, you told me to forgive. I get it, you told me to be generous. I get it, you told me I have to share, I have to be this, I have to be that, I have to, I get it, fine. You can compel me, so I'll comply. We find ourselves back in that place of following God, compliant, but just compliant. And that's where Jonah finds himself. So Jonah, chapter 2, verses 10, then the Lord ordered, ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Can you imagine if you were on that beach that day? That's always my favorite imagery of the Bible. This guy gets spit out by the fish. Can you imagine what you would think? I mean, my goodness. It would be so incredibly terrifying. And would you go home and tell anybody, or would you just go, nobody's going to believe me anyway? So that's what happens. God gives him mercy. And then the next verse, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up. Now you'll notice, God has not spoken to Jonah again since the first time that God spoke to Jonah. God said, 
go to the Ninevites. Jonah, through his actions, said no. And God compelled him through his circumstances to repentance. But he didn't speak to him. But then all of a sudden, he opens his mouth to speak to him again. And he says, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. And so it goes on, and in verse 3 it says, This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. This time he obeyed. You know, we're all very happy for Jonah here, right? And we're kind of relieved. We're like, what would God have done next, you know, if he had said, nope, actually, now that I'm out of this fish, I'm going to run the other. I mean, who knows what would have happened? The story would have been much longer. But does it just take us one time? You know, I I know that in my own life, there have been things that I know the Lord has spoken to me, um, thought patterns that have, uh, have really attached themselves to me, regrets, unforgiveness, whatever it is. And I knew that I was supposed to lay them down and I was supposed to go a different direction, but instead I just buried myself deeper. Maybe a storm of life shook me free and I said, okay, I'll be compliant but I regret to say that many times I found myself on the beach just getting right back on a boat, heading right back into the same storm, just to get knocked right back on the same beach. So important that we understand that God sends us to the beaches so that we can go a different direction, not so that we can repeat the same mistake over and over again. And so, Verse 4, on the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. He really didn't sugarcoat it at all. It doesn't sound like he's trying to convince them of anything. He's really trying to give them the shortest message possible that would comply with what he was asked to do. I mean, God gave him kind of a little bit of a longer message, right? Like their wickedness has come up to me, all of this different stuff. But he's just like, look, in 40 days, God's going to destroy this whole place. A message given. God, go ahead and just destroy him. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. From the greatest to the least, they declared a fast, and they put on burlap to show their sorrow. And when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent a decree throughout the city and said, everybody's fasting, including the animals, and everyone's going to wear garments of mourning, even the animals. Can you imagine chasing? Fido around with the sackcloth and ashes. Everybody must pray earnestly to God. They have to turn their evil ways and stop their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet, God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. And when God saw what they had done, And how they had put a stop to their evil ways. He changed his mind and didn't carry out the destruction he had threatened. 
Now, now let's remember that at the beginning of this, Israel has had king after king after king who would not bow their knee to God, their own God. King after king after king, prophet after prophet has declared God's word. They have it written down. Stay on task. If you don't, judgment is coming. We have all kinds of things written to them, and they have not turned and repented. And one prophet walks into Nineveh and yells a mean message in a mean tone, not meant to be received and heard. And everybody goes, you're right. And they repent, not even knowing if it would do any good. They repent, not even knowing if God would take mercy on them or not. And it's so sad because these Ninevites seem to understand more about God's character than Jonah did. They understood that God takes great delight in giving mercy. That God takes great delight in hearing our prayers. That God takes great delight in forgiving us. Jonah didn't like that at all. And maybe he felt bad. Because it made him look bad. I mean, after all, he was a prophet to Israel, and Israel wasn't repenting. And if Nineveh repented so completely, and Israel wasn't repenting, would God turn his back on Israel? And maybe choose somebody else? Jonah is not happy at all. He's not happy at all. It says in in chapter 4, The change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I know you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He says things things like it's bad. Now remember, these are the same things that have kept Israel from getting blown up for hundreds of years of disobedience. And these are the same things that allowed him to escape the belly of a whale and a storm. And yet they're a bad thing when they're applied to the Ninevites. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. He's worried about his reputation. See, Jonah was one for one. He had told the Israelites, maybe it's before, maybe it's after, you know, that they were going to get their territories back. He was right. Well, now he's declared destruction, and it didn't happen. God, this makes me look bad. My image, I need you to carry out your judgment on all these people so that my image can be upheld. So that my identity as being better than them can be verified. So that how I feel about Israel can be validated. So you can really show that these guys, they don't get any second chances. I mean, Israel, we're your favorite. So we get lots and lots of second chances. But don't show mercy on them. Don't show mercy on them. And the Lord replies, he says, is it right for you to be angry about this? There's no indication that Jonah replies to God at all. 
It says in verse 5, Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah refuses again to accept God's word. Now look, God has already said, right? I'm not going to destroy them. But Jonah goes to sit outside to see if they'll get destroyed. It's like he has a hearing problem. He does not want to agree with God on this. He doesn't just leave. He doesn't just get mad and leave. He sticks around to see if God will change his mind and destroy the city. He refuses to accept God's words over the Ninevites. But what about us? Do we accept God's words over those who've wronged us? over those who still don't see what part they played in our own difficulties, who still don't think they're as wrong as we think they are? Do we accept God's words over those who have different paths or sins or differences than us? You know, it's one thing to say that I believe what God says about me, but do we also believe what God says about those around us? I am a child of God. I am loved, adored, and accepted by my Father in heaven. It has to start there. You have to believe that. But it can't stop there. It has to move to you are a child of God. You who annoy me. You who stole from me. You who I don't think desert. You. You. You are a child of God. You are loved, adored and accepted by our Father in heaven. I can't tell you how many times I've had conflicts with people, and God's reminded me, but remember, he's my kid just like you are. I I love him just the way I love you. I died for him the same as I died for you. You know that that kid who's, who's not nice to your kid at school? God loves him. God's spoken good things over his life. Every promise in the book that's for your child is for that child too. But it's hard for us to believe the words that God has spoken over the people that are just a little bit difficult. How would our outlook and our actions change if we accepted God's word not only over our own lives, but the lives of those we interact with? How would our outlook change? How would our attitude change towards the driver that cuts us off? How would our attitude change towards the teacher that's unfair? How would our attitude change towards the boss that's not prepared or the employee that misses the mark? It's not that we don't hold people accountable. I'm talking about how does our outlook change? How does our heart change? So what happens? Jonah 4, 6, the Lord God, as Jonah is sitting there pouting, hoping that God changes his mind and blows up a city. I want you to see this very clearly. That's what he's hoping for. He's hoping that God will blow up a city, okay? You thought you had a bad day. All right. Jonah 4, 6, and the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So God once again provides blessings in the midst of Jonah's stubbornness and disobedience. He is sitting there waiting for a city of people that God has accepted to blow up and God grows him a shade plant. God shows him grace. 
And the Bible says that Jonah's grateful for the plant, but sometimes our gratitude is restricted to how God has blessed us in a material sense, but it doesn't extend to the God who blessed us. He doesn't say he's grateful for God. He says he's just grateful for the blessing that God gave him. So verse 7, but God also arranged for a worm. God's arranging all kinds of stuff. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged, again, for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Because the plant died. Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Now Jonah chose to sit there in the sun. He chose to sit there as a spectator to judgment that he hoped would happen. And do you know what happens to spectators? They become judges. If you ever find yourself going, man, I've become really judgmental lately, look at your seat because you've probably become a spectator too. He chose to sit there. It's a desert region. You can look at a map. It's hot. This is just the natural state. God had provided a blessing that gave him shelter in the midst of a hot, arid region, right? Now, Jonah didn't reply when God asked him, now should you be angry when he spared the entire city of Nineveh? He didn't even answer God. He didn't even answer God. But God asks him the same question about the plant, and he's like, yes! Even angry enough to die. Yes, I should be angry. And you know, it's so sad because He has plenty to complain about when God takes away the material comforts of his own life. But he has nothing to say. He has nothing to say and is just angry when God doesn't kill an entire city of people. I have heard people rail against God's unfairness because they were going through difficult economic systems, systems, seasons, that forced hard choices but never even speak about the difficulties of those who would call their hard season prosperity. What do we speak up for? Are we like Jonah? We complain to God because our shade tree broke down, but we don't have anything to say when it comes to the destruction of an entire people group. But see, when we lack God's heart, we lack the proper perspective to give us courage in the midst of our adversity and perspective on the adversity of others. See, God's heart gives us courage in the midst of our adversity, but it also gives us empathy for what other people are going through. And that's what Jonah lacks. He has the word of God, but he doesn't have the spirit of God to go along with it. He can hear God's voice, but for some reason, he can't feel God's heart. He sees God's way as a weakness instead of the only way. 
Jonah 4, 10 through 11 is the end of the story. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. Isn't it so funny how often we become entitled and proud of the things that we did nothing to accomplish? It came quickly, and it died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? We have to understand this message is radical at the time that it's written. Today we might say, well, of course, Jesus came for all, but the God of the Old Testament is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Israel. He's the God of the Hebrews. And yet the God of the Hebrews is saying, look, there is this town of 120,000, and they are in spiritual darkness. Shouldn't I feel sorry for them? And that's how the book ends. No repentance from Jonah. Just a question. The answer from Jonah's actions is a resounding no. And Jonah's story proves that we can hear God's voice and that we can read his word without ever tapping in to his heart. And that should be a thought that terrifies us to our core and that drives us to our knees and says, God, please don't let me be like Jonah. Let me know your heart. Let me have your spirit so that when I read your word, I don't read into it my own prejudices and my own hangups and my own issues, but I read there what you've written for me to understand. We can be compelled by his judgment or his fear of judgment to obey. But until we're committed, until we love him enough to love what he loves, we miss the point. Until we're committed. So tonight the question to me and the question to you is are we committed? Are we all in in our language? And you can come and play. Oh, perfect. Or are you just compliant? Am I just compliant? Am I committed? Am I all in? Am I like those sailors who said, you know what, you probably have a good reason for this and we trust you? Or am I like Jonah over here saying the good characteristics of God as though they were bad? See, when you were compliant, and not committed, when we're just compliant, when we just comply with the letter of the law, we become complainers. And then we start to compromise. And life gets really complicated. But when we're committed, when we're committed, then we have no fear but to communicate with God. We say, you know what, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it, but I want to. Can you teach me? God, this is difficult, but will your power please empower me? We begin to communicate with God instead of complaining to God. I've never made a complainer who wanted to communicate, right? What do they say? I just need a sounding board. Well, then go talk to a board. 
little too much? Okay. I want to be committed because I want to communicate. I don't want to just talk. I want him to talk back. I want him to expose the things in my heart that are ugly, the way that I feel about people that isn't right, the way that I don't see things in the way that he sees it. I don't want to justify my own actions. I want to see justice done. Like he said in Isaiah, when we're committed, we communicate. When we're committed, we commence immediately with the mission. We just start. We just start. We just say, okay, I'm committed. I'm in. Okay, you said that. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Where do I? I'll start somewhere. It may not even be the right place, but I'll start somewhere. We see that in the New Testament. I mean, God told them to go and make disciples, and they just start going places. I mean, God has to tell them in dreams to slow down and not go places. Can you imagine? Now we wait for dreams for God to tell us to go across the street to tell our neighbor. We commence when we're committed. And that leads to this beautiful thing called communion. And see, communion is a community event. When we're committed, I'm committed to you too because God's committed to you. I'm ready to enter the communion of the believers because I may not completely agree with you. We may not completely get along. Your personality may drive me crazy, but I'm committed. And what part I play is not as big as what I am a part of. I'm committed. You know, when I post about my own troubles on Facebook or I post a cute picture of my little girls, I get hundreds of likes. I mean, I have a lot of friends on Facebook, but I get hundreds of likes. Tons of comments, too. It's amazing what happens. Do you know that when I post about refugees, I usually get about 10? Almost all of them are from my friends who I went to college and law school with. And the last time I did it, I got one comment, and it was from my former Buddhist roommate. I'm not talking about political stuff. I'm not talking about a petition. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of people trapped in a desert living in tents. Talking about Nineveh. I'm talking about taking the word of God that says, when I was hungry and you fed me, and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, and you visited me in prison and doesn't have a single political thing on it or qualification or anything and putting it into our real lives. You may say, Destiny, that's a really bad example. I don't think so. I don't think it's a bad example at all. And it breaks my heart because that's not who we are. That's not who we are as a community. That's not who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. That is not who we are. We are people who pick up water and give it to those who need it the most. We are the people who believe that God came for everyone all over the world.
world. We are those people and we are not culture acceptors. We will not accept the choices that our culture gives us. We are culture changers. And that means that we stand on the word of God and the word of God dictates our decisions, not outside social cues and not conversations that we shouldn't be a part of anyway. I don't want to be like Jonah. I don't want God's love and grace to be restricted to me so that I can feel unique and special and protected. I don't want to exclude other people from the message or put myself in a protected position. I don't want to be like Jonah. And I don't want to exclude others by making excuses why they don't deserve to be loved and cared for as God has loved us. And please don't limit this conversation to one instance. There's so many. It's so broad. It's so broad. I don't want to make excuses for why God should have mercy on me for the 50,000 billionth time. But God shouldn't have mercy on somebody else for the first. I don't want to be that person. But it's so easy to be that person. See, God's question, shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city, reminds me of the one that prompted Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan. See, Jesus said to love your neighbor, right? And their question was, who is my neighbor? See, that's the tendency of the human heart, isn't it? To limit our responsibility? To limit it? Say, surely God, I mean, there's, there's a limit to who you love and who you care about. Surely God, I mean, really, we can, we can pull some things from here and there and, and we can justify the way that we treat this type of person or, or this person in our family or, or this person at work. I mean, really, surely God, can you define for me who my neighbor is. See, who is my neighbor requires you to define who you are and who your God's called you to be. And whether or not God should be sorry has to do with how you see him and how I see him. Is he my own personal avenger? My own personal blessing machine? Is he my own personal concierge and therapist? Or is he the God that died for the whole world? See, Jonah still speaks to us today. Will we be compliant? Will I be compliant? Will I take the deep breath and be committed? And be committed. Because compliance looks to the blessings of God. But committed is what Jesus said, if any man would follow me, he will take up his cross. It's beautiful imagery now. It was bloody horrific imagery then. If any man would follow me, he will take up his cross don't want you to be under any misunderstanding 
of what following Christ in a committed way requires. It requires us to love bigger than is comfortable. It requires us to give more generously than we could ever imagine. It will require us to lean into hard things. But more than anything else, it'll require us to say, God, I don't get it, but I'm not just compliant. I'm in line and I commit not just to what you've done for me, but I commit to your mission, not my own. And even when it doesn't make sense, and even when my own prejudice stands in the way, I'll stay on mission. I'll stay on mission. Jonah's kind of wrecking my life. And I hope that you'll let this strange little man and his fish wreck a little bit of yours too. Will you stand with me? You just bow your heads. You know, being committed isn't easy. It's a lot easier to be compliant. But I will say this, being compliant is not fulfilling at all. It also isn't a very long-term solution. I've known a lot of people who've been compliant their whole life and they didn't live in the abundant life. Because they missed the mission. They miss the whole point. I don't want to miss the whole point. I don't think you do either. This is what I want us just to pray. Just as you stand there, will you ask God to show you the areas of your life where you've been like Jonah? Maybe where you've refused to obey. I mean, obeying is the first step. You have to get in compliance in order to become committed. to show you those areas where you need to repent turn a different direction but then I also want us to search our hearts for the people that we've decided not to believe God's word over we've decided to exclude as not being worthy of God's love and God's grace the silence that we've allowed to creep into our lives. The silence. The silence. Let us not be people who are silent when those Christ died for are at issue. Let us be people who are committed to seeing heaven come. To seeing heaven come. Lord, I believe that you are revealing your spirit and revealing your heart to the people in this room. Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word. And your word has power. Your word changes us. But if we don't allow your spirit change the way we think to change our hearts 
then we can have your word and completely miss the point. Lord, let us not be like Jonah. Let us not just be hearers of the word, but let us be doers too. Show us how to love bigger, serve more, and care for all those in our community and all those that cross our path. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Let us love the world with so love, big love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.